It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I am your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from our studio here in Tempe, Arizona. My co-host, Landon Mance, is not here today and uh, is going to slowly fade away from being a host on the on the program due to some uh, constraints that we have in our, in our day jobs or in our business. And so uh, you've got just me. So hopefully the listenership stays the same. Maybe it goes higher. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll figure that out and, uh, and I'll be able to discuss that with Landon in the future. Um, we're excited to, uh, to have a guest in the, in the studio today, Jenny Mullins, co-founder and program director of Advocacy 31.9. It's a nonprofit that, that specializes in working with foster children. So we're going to get to that in just a second. But if this is the first time that you've listened to our program and you're not sure what we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz, we're a radio show and a, pro, and, a, and a podcast for small business by small business. What I mean by that is Landon and I are small business owners. We're also children and grandchildren of small business owners. And so small business really runs in our blood. And we believe that the backbone of the American economy is the small business owner. Alongside that, about once a quarter, you see us uh, highlight a nonprofit, which is what we're going to do today. And so it's kind of a special episode that we do once a quarter because nonprofits are important. And the reality is a lot of business owners in our community give freely of their resources to nonprofits to help these nonprofits survive. And we want to make sure that, you know, nonprofits have an opportunity to to thrive and to be uh, lifted up and, 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 you know, celebrated, so to speak. So today we definitely do have a tycoon of small biz, even though it's on the nonprofit side, Jenny Mullins, like I said earlier with the, uh, as co-founder and program director of Advocacy 31.9. So Jenny, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And we, we obviously love having studios and guests. You get the full experience, you yeah. get to put the headphones on and, and uh, have the really nice microphones, et cetera. So um, before we jump in, as to what you do at Advocacy 319, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you personally, sure. where you grew up, what your background is, and kind of what led you to to start here with Advocacy 319. Yeah, actually, I grew up in Tempe, Arizona, not far from where we're recording right now. Um, moved here when I was really young, but have lived here ever since. And uh, my background is I was a teacher for about 10 years, elementary education, and then stopped teaching when I had my daughter who was diagnosed with autism. And that kind of veered my trajectory a little bit towards special education and really advocating for my own daughter and what her needs were. And that kind of led me to advocate for other other kids that had special needs. Um, and yeah, that led me down this path of being a part of a nonprofit and starting a nonprofit. Gotcha. So how long ago did you did you launch Advocacy 319? Yeah, we started out in 2017 was kind of our soft launch. And then 2018, we got our 501c3. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us what it is that you guys do. Yeah, great question. So we, um, our nonprofit, we have two main programs that, that serve 
students in foster care. And our main mission is to advocate for the educational success of students in foster care. Um, so our first program is we have a team of advocates that um, is matched up with family, foster families and just kind of helps them navigate the special education process, how to get their child evaluated by the school or how to get tutoring or counseling or whatever the kid needs at school, help them navigate that whole process. And then as we started doing that, we realized that um, the kids that have been in foster care obviously have been impacted by trauma. And so that affects how they learn. And so we realized that the school oftentimes doesn't know much about how trauma impacts how they learn. And so we started doing trainings for school staff, um, for behavioral health agencies on trauma and kind of doing some research-based training for schools and other agencies as well. Okay. So any history yourself with the foster care system or, I mean, obviously you yeah. have a, a child with some special needs right. on the autism spectrum, but that's a far cry from, you know, foster care. Right, right. Yeah. So my husband and I were actually in the process of becoming foster parents right when our daughter got diagnosed with autism. So we put that on hold, but I still had it in my heart really for kids in foster care. So I started volunteering with an, a couple other local nonprofits as a mentor for birth moms and then also working with kids in foster care. And they really just gripped my heart and saw just the resilience that they had. And, and so as I was a special education advocate, I kept getting all these foster families referred to me and I, I couldn't bear to charge them for my services. So um, started this nonprofit as a way to kind of have an impact in foster care without being a foster parent myself. And kind of how we launched was I got, in touch with a friend from high school who was a foster parent of seven, which seemed really overwhelming to me, <laughs> and um, helped her with the whole school process. And we stood in a parking lot of a school and just dreamed about what it would look like to have a nonprofit that provided the support. And that parking lot conversation was really the catalyst that led to starting this organization. So we started it about six months later, we started it together. Wow. Yeah. So does she still have seven foster children? She does. She adopted them. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Good for her. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, seven children, period, exactly. is a lot. It right? is. But when it's foster children, sometimes that comes with, like you said, you know, yeah. trauma or other baggage mm -hmm. that makes it even more difficult to, to right. help them. So yeah. hats off to her for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my wife and I actually fostered a child for about six months is mm. all, and it, it ended mm -hmm. up being a better fit for her to be placed with a different, with a different family. And she's thriving and doing very well now. She's actually an adult now. Oh, wow. Yeah, she might be 18, maybe 16, 17 okay. uh, in that range. So that was quite a while ago. But, uh, you know, that gave us a taste of what it what it's mm -hmm. like. And then I also have a cousin that has fostered many children over the last four or five years. Mm. They've adopted, you know, some. They've wanted to adopt others. And, and sometimes it's just really heartbreaking because you yeah. get so close with them. You see mm -hmm. the kids start to thrive. And then right. ultimately they get placed back with their parents. Right. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed it was always my desire to foster myself, but just life circumstances made that not possible. But what I've learned is there's so many different roles and ways to support kids in foster care, whether it's fostering yourself or supporting the families that are doing that work, because it's really, really hard work. And so to have other people and other roles that can support those kids in different ways is huge. Yeah, no, no doubt. We can all, there's a lot of things that all of us can do without yeah. taking that full step. So right. You know, I've already said the name Advocacy 31-9 yeah. several times. It doesn't roll off the tongue exactly. No. 
So tell us a little bit about where that came from and, and why your tagline's amplifying your voice. Yeah, yeah. So we were joking that we were not branding experts when we started the, <laughs> this nonprofit, but it comes from uh, the verse in Proverbs 31.9, and it says, stand up, speak rightly, defend the rights of the poor and vulnerable. And so when we set out and had our mission, we really felt like that captured the mission of what we were trying to do. And then the tagline, Amplify Your Voice, um, we really feel like students in foster care have a voice and they're incredibly resilient and have a lot to teach us, but oftentimes their voice is not heard, um, whether it's at school or moving around from place to place. And so we really feel like our job as advocates is to amplify the voice and what they need to the people that have the power to be able to meet that need. Yeah, I think I think it's critical, right? I mean, I think all children need advocates, right? I yeah. mean, that's why we have parents regardless. Right. But if there's anything unique or different mm-hmm. than, you know, not that anybody's normal, but quote right. unquote normal children, right. then it's it's that much more crucial, right? Just mm-hmm. like you advocate for your daughter that's on the autism spectrum. Right. There's different advocacy needs from Mm-hmm. from the foster care system. Mm-hmm. The, the reality is, I mean, people kind of have an idea, but if you're disengaged, you know, children in foster care have gone through a lot of things that are pretty difficult. Right. And not the least of which being removed from your home mm-hmm. and the parents that you've known your whole life to then be in a in a completely different area and wonder what your future holds. Right, right. And even just, you know, if the removal is traumatic, on top of whatever trauma they've experienced. But then if they're moved to another location and just that constant change, I think is just really hard. And so they do need an advocate, someone that can step in and say, this is what this child needs. And I think foster parents are amazing because they oftentimes are advocates in that way, but they get kind of lost in the the education world. Unless they've had a background in education or know about special education, it can be really confusing. And so that's kind of where we feel like we can come alongside and help take away some of the anxiety that comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you just said foster parents are amazing and and I agree a hundred percent. The only foster parents that I know in my life are just amazing people, mm-hmm. big hearts, want to, want to give back. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately we see on TV and in, in the mm. movies that a lot of foster parents in these, in these situations. So maybe you can dispel or confirm this, yeah. this uh, myth, so to speak, but it, it it looks as though in these movies that these foster mm-hmm. parents, they're doing it for the money. They're taking on as many foster children as they can. And that's kind of how mm. they're living. But then the foster kids don't have a great life. Mm. So mm-hmm. what's your experience been like here in Arizona with, with that? Yeah. I mean, my experience with the families that we interact with are incredibly sacrificial um, families that give up a lot to take in children. I mean, I do think that there are bad apples that give a lot of foster parents a bad name, and that's really unfortunate. But I think I talked to a foster mom that said she worked out the math, and I think she gets like a dollar fifty per day for her child. So if you're doing it for the money, you're kind of in the wrong profession. Yeah, <laughs> you, might, right. you might need to talk to you and get some financial <laughs> advice or something, because yeah, I mean, you're not getting a lot of money. You're you end up giving much more of yourself and your time and your resources if you go into being a foster parent. So in my opinion or my experience, I haven't seen that. I have heard similar stories, you know, on the news or whatever, but I think those are outliers for sure. And the majority are just people that want to love on kids that need to be loved. 
Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. And I, I just wanted to make sure that that got dispelled because yeah, when you watch yeah, yeah. TV, that's kind of what you see it's most true. about foster parents. And, and unfortunately, that's just not the norm. It's right. just It's just like I tell my own clients, you know, when you're watching the news to see how the market's doing and and have that drive your thought process about mm. your own investments, you're doing it wrong, right? Because right? right. they're, they're there to sell advertisements. Mm-hmm. And so they're always using sensationalized right. messages. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, good. So tell us a little bit about some of the unique challenges that students in foster care face. Yeah, unfortunately, I think students in foster care bounce around a lot, Um, whether it's, you know, they're in an initial foster home or they're in a group home and that they move around. And so um, research would say that every time a a child moves from school to school, they lose six months of academics. And so for some of our kids that we work with, they've moved five times in the past year. So if you you think of that just academically, they're at a disadvantage. And then um, there was a really interesting study done by Stanford Medical Center that said that children who have experienced trauma are 32 times more likely to experience learning difficulties as a direct tie to the trauma they've experienced. And so most of our students they receive special education, but it's not necessarily what you'd think of in terms of disabilities. It's a lot of times learning disabilities or developmental disabilities that are directly tied to either substance abuse or trauma they've experienced. And then I think just the achievement gap that exists because of those learning disabilities or because of, you know, bouncing around from school to school. I think some of those are the main challenges that we see um, for kids that we're, we're helping. Yeah. And I think, you know, I I think back to my own childhood and I've got some, some siblings that have some learning disabilities that they Mm -hmm. dealt with throughout their lives. And what happens is you don't know how to express the way that you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then it leads, leads to social problems in the classroom. Right. And then you're kind of branded as a problem child. Right. You're the bad kid. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And you're not, you're not necessarily you know, there's learning disabilities, but a lot of those can be overcome, whether it's sure. dyslexia or, you know, right. just a lot of other things or just being behind because mm-hmm. you moved schools mm-hmm. five times in, in a year. Right. But once you're branded as that mm-hmm. bad kid, if the teacher doesn't understand it or the other kids don't understand right. it, then it just becomes compounded and it turns into a real problem right. over the years. Yeah. I was just at a school uh, for a, a meeting for a kiddo that I'm working with and the teacher was saying he always runs under the desk or he tries to run away. And I said, well, when does he do that? And she said, oh, it's every time we do reading. And this kid's this third grader that can't read. And I was like, well, there you go. That's why That's why he's running away. He doesn't know how to do what you're asking him. And it's easier to save face and be the bad kid by doing those things rather than be in front of your peers and admit that you don't know how to read. And so, yeah, I think that's a huge um, thing that we're trying to overcome and help students is oftentimes they are identified as those bad kids or the kids with behavioral issues. And we really feel like behavior is communication. So in that example, that kid was trying to communicate, I don't know how to do this, but he didn't use those words. His actions spoke that. But um, if we're able to kind of help translate that to the school team um, and then get him the support he needs to build up those skills, wow, we really feel like he could be a lot more successful. Yeah. Yeah. So in your opinion, how well equipped today is our school system to deal with this or special needs in general? 
Ugh. <laughs> I'm scared to answer that question. You know, Arizona is, I think, 49th in school funding. And so because of funding, I think that's put schools in really, really difficult positions, especially post-COVID. And so I think kids that need academic interventions or need help with occupational therapy, that all costs money. And so when you have schools that are trying to balance their budgets and also meet the needs of children, you have this kind of catch-22 or between a rock and a hard place is kind of where schools find themselves. And so I think it's not because schools don't want to help children, but I think there's just a lack of resources in our schools, in our state in particular, that make it really challenging for schools to do what they really want to do and want to do well. So unfortunately, the most vulnerable kids are the kind of caught in the crossfire of that, which is really hard to see. Um, yeah. 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 I think it's tough to watch. You know, I, I so you mentioned occupational therapy. That's mm-hmm. what my daughter wants to do. Mm, she, that's just, awesome. she just started her first year of college. So she's got a ways to go yeah. um, until she does that. But she's, she's worked her whole high school and even into junior high with the special needs mm. kids mm-hmm. at her school. And she just really has a gift for it. She's drawn to them. She works very well with them. And so, you know, there are people like her. This is not unique. My daughter's, well, it might be unique for a teenager. Mm. She's 18 Mm -hmm. now. But um, there are plenty of people who relate well with with children with special needs and and who have a desire to help them. Mm -hmm. But this is probably the toughest question that I'll ask you all day today. But in your perfect world, right? Mm. You've been doing this, you know, for three years as a nonprofit. How old's your daughter again? She's 12. So, okay, so you've been advocating for her for 12 years. Yeah, you know, 10, 12, 12 years. years. Yeah. Um, so you've got more experience than most. In a perfect world, how do we solve this mm. in our community? Yeah, I think, I think it takes, well, like this, the phrase says, it takes a village. I really think that schools on their own are not equipped to meet all the needs of students. And so I, I do feel like it comes, um, whether it's faith communities or businesses, to partner with schools to help kind of bridge some of those gaps that exist. Ideally, I think that schools would be funded so that they could meet, you know, staffing. Staffing-wise, they could hire enough people, that teachers would be paid well enough where they would want to stay. I know this gets kind of political, but um, yeah, I do think that ideally we would value education so much and we would value our children so much that we would be willing to put the money and the investment into our schools um, that it takes to really educate not just any student, but the most vulnerable student. Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's where it gets tough, right? And unfortunately, it does become political. I, mm-hmm. I don't think it should, but it does. Right. Um, you know, the, the reality is we all want, well, I think most parents want their children to have a good educational experience. Right. Specifically, if they have any sort of special need, they mm-hmm. want their, their children to be taken care of and get the education that they, that they need. Right. They're going to do everything that they can at home. But what we're hearing is that the educational system is not equipped to fill that gap. Right. 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 Now, earlier you mentioned that the state of Arizona is the 49th state out of 50, Mm -hmm, by the way, mm -hmm. in terms of of funding. Right. Right. Now, my understanding is that our test scores in Arizona are actually not 
bad. They're kind of middle of the road mm-hmm. with that funding. Mm-hmm. As a business owner, as a taxpayer, as everybody you know yeah. out there is, it, it seems to me that it's a financial problem, right? And, mm-hmm. and me being a financial guy, I would want to say, okay, let's let's look at this budget, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'll be the first to raise my hand and stand up and say, teachers are way underpaid in Absolutely. our country. Yeah. There's just, there's no way Across the that. board, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's actually amazing to me that some of the teachers that we have choose to be teachers right. knowing that, mm-hmm. right? My, my daughter reminds me, you know, all the time that she had a couple of teachers that really had an impact on her. She went to Highland High School in mm-hmm. Gilbert mm-hmm. and that, that had a tremendous impact on her. And they had careers prior to mm. becoming teachers mm-hmm. and careers that paid way more than becoming, than they get paid as a teacher. Right. They feel more fulfilled as a teacher, mm-hmm. but they still made that decision to walk away from that money to become right. a teacher. That situation is very rare, mm-hmm. right? Most people are going to, are going to choose a career, one that they love, but they're mm-hmm. going to choose it based on what they can make from a financial standpoint throughout their career. Right. And when we have teacher not being one of those top career mm-hmm. opportunities out there, how do we get the teachers that we need, first of all, that care and want to be there and do right. a good job for our kids, specifically those with special needs, mm-hmm. if we don't pay them right. to do that? And then on top of that, the other side of that is the budget to get enough teachers in the classroom. Right and enough training in the classroom for those teachers Mm -hmm. to handle these specific situations. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it's Finland that has one of the best education systems. And I remember learning a little bit about how they, how they pay their teachers. They pay them as very high tier professionals. All their teachers have master's degrees and it's a very prestigious job, very competitive. And so I think, uh, yeah, if we paid teachers and had that same expectation, we would be able to attract and retain teachers. Um, but unfortunately, right now in Arizona, teachers are leaving <laughs> by the droves, um, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, I think it's I think it's tough to watch. I keep telling my wife that I think she would be a fantastic teacher. Mm. She had studied that initially. She wanted to be a history teacher. Um, and she did her student teaching mm-hmm. at a high school and learned very quickly that most students are not as passionate about history as she was. <laughs> and so she she said, you know what? I don't think this is for me, uh-huh. right? Because they don't care. Mm-hmm. They're coming in, putting their head down and going to sleep because they could care less about my lesson plan. Right. They may be, you know, interested in their whatever, PE mm-hmm. class or math or science or, you know, whatever's most interesting to them, but they're not interested for the most part in history. Right. And that was hard for her because my wife's very passionate mm. about history. Mm-hmm. So she changed what she what she does for a living. She's a freelance genealogist, so it's mm. still research and yeah. writing. And now she does a lot of work with um, some nonprofits with refugees. And mm. so she's still doing a lot of good in the world. Yeah. But my wife and her ability to teach, I mm. think she would be phenomenal yeah. at it. But she's making a decision based on, one, it's hard. Yeah. And two, it doesn't pay that well. Right, right. So, you know, I don't I don't think you'll ever see our country go the way of Finland. Right, right? yeah. Because the money that they're putting into that mm-hmm. with the way that their government structure is, mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen in our country. Right. But there's got to be something 
done differently, I think. Yeah. And I do want to give a huge shout out to the teachers that are still teaching because I have, you know, met some incredible teachers who are super passionate and even through the whole pandemic are just going above and beyond. And so I think we have some amazing teachers in Arizona and I really want them to feel appreciated and honored for the work that they're doing. And it really, it matters and keep it up teachers. We see you, you're doing a great job. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. I don't, I don't, I mean, there's probably just like in anything, some Mm -hmm. bad apples out there, right. That Mm -hmm. are, that are just kind of finishing their term to get the pension and all that sort of thing. But by and large, the teachers are committed people who care deeply about our children and their education. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I don't know, man, I'm going to have to look into that a little bit more and, and, uh, and you have to I, solve it for us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have a, a voice large enough, I don't think, to to solve it. But, you know, I, I, the more I think about it, I mean, as a homeowner, knowing that mm-hmm. a good portion of my property taxes go to fund the schools, right. that also creates a problem in and of itself. Mm, because mm-hmm. I live in an affluent community. And right. so my kids get a pretty good education mm-hmm. at Highland High School mm-hmm. in the Gilbert Public School System. Mm-hmm. But... In other areas where the property taxes aren't as high because the homes aren't worth as much money, right. then they end up getting a subpar education right. in a lot of in a lot of cases. And I, I feel like that's that's wrong. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. Everybody yeah. should have an equal opportunity at the same type of education, regardless of your absolutely. financial background. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So yeah. I was lucky, I think. I had some uh good teachers, even though I did grow up in a very poor area mm. and uh and didn't you know, didn't have the best opportunities, but mm-hmm. I had those teachers yeah. that were very committed and wanted to work hard and, and, you know, help me along, so to speak. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, now we're going to go even, uh, even deeper. So before we do that, let's go, let's take a quick break and, uh, and we'll have our call to action and then we'll come back and talk about some of the other, the other aspects of what you guys do. Sounds good. Hey there, Tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, Please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right. Welcome back, Tycoons. We're here, uh, Austin Peterson here, host of Tycoons of Small Biz here with Jenny Mullins, uh, co-founder and pro- program manager with Advocacy 319 you know, we've, we've covered a lot today. I think, you know, we've, we've, we've covered the fact that, uh, I think everybody already knew this, but our educational system in this country is kind of broken. Yep. Uh, it needs to be better mm-hmm. and there's, you know, there's going to have to be some change from the inside out. And unfortunately that's likely going to mean that we, in order to fix that, we've got to pay more taxes in some way, shape or form. I'm a fiscal conservative, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a big proponent of raising taxes. Mm-hmm. But if our educational system is falling short, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something's got to be fixed, yeah. right? Now, I think that there's a lot that needs to be fixed in Washington, not mm-hmm. to get political. We've got a lot of stuff that's being spent on stuff that shouldn't be spent, mm-hmm. that it shouldn't be spent on. And it could go to our school systems and right. kind of solve this issue. So 
know, I'll, I'll leave it at that without getting <laughs> without getting overly political. But so a couple tough things to talk about before we kind of end on a positive note. Yeah. So what does it look like from a from a school to prison pipeline system uh, or situation yeah. in, the, in the foster system? Yeah, I'd love to tell a story uh, kind of to illustrate this. So one of my very first cases, um, when I first became an advocate, a mom called us about a kindergartner who had thrown Play-Doh in his school, his kindergarten classroom. The kindergarten teacher sent him down to the principal. She must have been frustrated, didn't know what to do. The principal called the police and then called the mom and told the mom, your son's going to have a felony for throwing Play-Doh unless you pick him up right now. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I, I didn't even have a category for that. Like, what do you mean a felony? This little boy had been in and out of foster care. He was a black little boy raised by a single mom. And that's when I learned about the school to prison pipeline. So the ACLU, I'll just kind of read from my notes because I want to make sure I get it right. But the school to prison pipeline is a disturbing, disturbing national trend where children are pushed out of schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. Students of color and students with disabilities are most affected uh, because of discriminatory punitive school discipline policies and lack of resources and training in schools. This is the part that haunts me. As a result, far too many of our most at-risk students end up incarcerated instead of educated. And so I saw with that kindergartner, that school-to-prison pipeline was already, you know, the groundwork for that was already laid in this little boy's life. And so as I started getting uh, more and more students impacted by foster care referred to me, and I started working in, in schools, I realized that oftentimes, like we talked about, kids get labeled as the bad kid. And so oftentimes that leads to a suspension without people advocating within the system to be like, hey, wait a second, this kid's needs aren't being met. That's why they're getting in trouble. Often that leads to expulsion. And once a student's expelled from school, other schools can, they don't have to enroll a student. And so oftentimes that leads to further trouble and then they get into the juvenile justice system. And so I've seen this play out with students I've worked with. And once they get into juvenile justice, it's really hard to pull them back because that, that pipeline is just well-oiled. Like it's just really hard to get out of. It's not impossible, but it really takes a lot of people that are advocating for the needs of, of that student to get what they need at school. And so as I started learning more about this, I started thinking, okay, why is this happening? And what could be done preventatively to get to this point? This isn't an inevitable fact. Like we can't just accept this. Or to me, I felt like I can't just accept that this happens. Um, and so I started thinking, what if that boy or the teenager in this one situation, what if he had gotten help learning how to read? He had dyslexia, couldn't read. What if he had learned how to read and he had teachers that could make accommodations for him? He might not be getting in trouble and then lead to all these other downstream effects. So we really feel like if we could swim upstream and meet the needs of students, we could prevent a lot of these downstream effects and save taxpayers a lot of money in the process because it costs a lot of money to um, put people in prison. So yeah, that is the hard reality that I unfortunately had the eyes to see, but I was implicated once I saw it and I can't unsee it. And so I feel like it's become my mission in life to prevent that from happening for as many children as I can. I can't prevent that you know, I'm not the savior to anybody, but as far as it, as, as I can to help students not get to that point. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I find myself getting a little emotional listening to you tell that yeah. and, and share that information because no child deserves that, yep. period, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know that, yes, we need smaller classrooms, mm -hmm. right? But I think that, like you said, it ends up costing us just as much or Absolutely. more to put them into that system mm -hmm. rather than just helping them when they were younger right? to begin with, right? right? Mm -hmm. And if we've got people who are advocating, right? So good, proper parents or foster parents who are mm -hmm. going to advocate for them, your organization that have these advocates that go in and help, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe every classroom, if we can't get more teachers or make the classroom smaller, there, I've got to, I've got to think that there are plenty of stay at home moms in our country mm -hmm. who would love to go in and work for three or four hours in the classroom yeah. to help separate them from the rest of the class if needed to help them with the things that they need help with mm -hmm. so that they can then rejoin the class and feel comfortable there and continue to thrive. Right. Or, you know, start to thrive really mm -hmm. for the first time mm -hmm. uh, in the classroom. I, I think that, that, that those statistics are just sobering. Yeah. And I, I think on the flip side of that, the positive side is that really what helps prevent some of that is just connection with a caring adult. And so the more connections that a, a child who has experienced trauma has with a caring and loving adult, the more healing that they experience and the more growth that they experience. So I don't think that this is inevitable that students that, you know, are at risk or, or have struggle, that inevitably this has to happen to them. I think that it's kind of for all of us to step in and be those caring people and positive connections for um, students who are at risk. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's plenty that would do it on a volunteer basis to yeah. go in and provide that. And definitely if there were people who could do it as a part-time job, yeah. that would, who would love to go mm -hmm. in and do that. Yeah. You know, my wife has an older sister that, that does exactly this. I mm. mean, she's, she's a teacher's aide. She goes in and, and she helps children that have different learning disabilities or yeah. other special needs, uh, in a low income area in Provo, Utah. Mm. And she's been doing it for almost 20 years, I learned. I didn't realize it had been that long until we visited her over, over Thanksgiving. But she finds it fulfilling. Yeah. It's hard, yeah. right? It's uh -huh. really hard to do, especially the older you get. Because right. she's, she's my, my, my wife's oldest sister. So okay. she's well into her 60s now. And it becomes harder to get down on the floor with right. you know, five-year-old kids and you know those yeah. sorts of things. But it's... It's needed mm -hmm. and it's a rewarding way to spend your time. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I think we need to get the word out to get more people yeah. who would be willing to go in and volunteer and get the, the school districts willing to let them come in. Right. If they understood what kind of an impact that they can have. Absolutely. Yeah. So one more uh, sobering thing to go into before we get to the positive thing. So <laughs> we see it in the national news. It's it's no secret to anybody that COVID has mm -hmm. affected students, period. Yeah. Right? They're saying that they're one to two years behind mm -hmm. in, on average. Right. But then the, the children in the margins, as mm -hmm. they like to say, which fits right in here, right. Um, have been affected even worse, whether it's that they didn't have access to the technology right. to get on the Zoom or, you know, whatever it was, mm -hmm. they find themselves even further behind. So talk to us about what you've seen there. Yeah, what I'm seeing, so we work with a lot of students in, in group homes as well. And I feel like those students have been most impacted because 
if they were in a group home, they didn't necessarily have somebody to sit right next to them, making sure they get their homework or logged into Zoom. And so, yeah, we are seeing that achievement gap just get wider and wider. It already existed, but COVID just revealed I think this achievement gap, and then it got wider. Um, I was, we have a partnership with the Tempe Union School District. And so we, um, I was talking to their foster care liaison who kind of oversees kids in foster care and then as well um, students that are homeless. And he said from last year to this year, they lost half of their population. They don't know where they are. They either didn't enroll in school um, or on the streets, like they just don't know what happened to them. And so you know, for him, he's like, this is half of our our kids. (laughs) We don't know what happened to them. And also in Arizona, funding is decided by, or it's tabulated by people, by students. So if you lose a majority of your students, you lose a majority of your, your funding as well. And so I think COVID is just, it's mixing everything up. And a lot of kids are getting lost in the shuffle, especially kids in foster care and kids, you know, that are homeless, that um, a lot of districts, I'm hearing this, they're just, they're, they don't know where they are. They're sending social workers to their homes, trying to find them, trying to get them enrolled. But um, it's been a huge issue that I think is just hard to tackle and figure out what's going on. Yeah, I think, I think that information might even be more sobering than the school to prison pipeline. I mean, yeah. half of the students that aren't returning after, after this is, yeah, that's terrible. A lot of high school students had to stay home with their younger siblings. Um, and, you know, take care of siblings, you know, if their parents had to work, if they were frontline workers or working at a gas station or whatever. And so a lot of times those students just didn't show up on Zoom. And this year, I think a lot of them just dropped out, unfortunately. Um, yeah, which is really concerning to think about the long-term impact of that, of this, of this generation of kids. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of work to recoup some of what all children have lost during COVID, but especially kind of like you said, for kids in the margins. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then that goes right back to the same statistic before that, you know, high school dropouts actually have a higher propensity to go towards prison as, as right. well. And right. so yeah. that probably makes the statistics overall increase. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting how much I didn't realize this till I started working in this area, but how much incarceration is so directly tied to education. You know, if you can get a student to graduate from high school, their rates of incarceration go way down. And even like the school to prison pipeline, there's just, it's so tied. And so I think whatever we do to support students educationally has exponential benefit down the road um, that we might not see until later, but the societal impact of that is huge. So if we can focus on getting students the help that they need, um, yeah, we're just going to reap a lot of reward in that. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think, you know, if we look at it that way rather than we've got a problem, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) We already talked about the educational system being broken in our country. We know the prison system is broken in our country. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's baffling to me to realize that we're the richest country in the world yeah. and we're failing on these fronts, Yeah. right? Our education system is, is a problem. And then we've got a higher incidence of imprisonment than mm-hmm. any country in the world. Right. It just, it doesn't make any sense to me, yeah. first of all, because of how much money's here. And second, those two are tied together. Mm-hmm. And so 
solve one, right? Solve the other, right? Right. Yeah. And it obviously makes sense that we solve the education side because mm -hmm. it's going to make the prison side be solved on its own, mm -hmm. or at least reduce it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. I mean, I don't. Yeah, we're not going to get away from having <laughs> any prisons. Right. right? right. There are still going to be people who commit crimes and deserve to be in prison. Right. There's definitely a fair amount of people that are in prison today that shouldn't be. Right. And even more that wouldn't be if they'd been helped. Exactly. When they were younger. Yeah, absolutely. And that really is what drives me. You know, people always talk about what's your why? This is my why because I feel like, yeah, if I can think about that little boy that threw Play-Doh and who, you know, the police call or the principal called and said the police were going to charge him with a felony, which is ridiculous. But to think about what will that child's life be like if he gets the help he needs at school versus what will his life be like if he doesn't? Like that really is what drives and motivates me to keep showing up for kids. And I think it takes a lot of us to keep showing up for kids um, that need it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a completely different topic, but I had a, we had a guest on a few months ago and she's, she's a Latina business owner mm -hmm. here and uh, here in the Valley. She's got a very successful um, media and advertising agency that uh, that does you know quite a bit with multi multicultural communications. Mm -hmm. Really, really smart lady, great, great business. But we got to talking in in her episode about the disparity between the number of white people who yeah. are you know who own businesses, the number of white people who have you know more wealth, all those sorts mm -hmm. of things. And, yeah, and there's definitely you know a divide in our country. Right. And what we came to the conclusion of on, on that episode is that it needs to be people like you and me, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a white, affluent man. Mm -hmm. You're a white, presumably affluent woman. Yeah. But we're working in these areas to try to help those who aren't the same as us. Right. And it, it has to be that way. I mean, mm -hmm. the, there's, it's, it's become such an issue in our country that they can't necessarily help themselves a hundred percent, right? We've got to be willing to stand up and say, this isn't right. We've got, we've got to help fix it, right? Whether it happened on purpose because we wanted to, you know, our, our ancestors wanted that to be the case mm -hmm. or just the fact that that's the way that it is today. We've got to stand up and help these people who are in the margins so that their future is different and they've got the same opportunities as the rest of us have. Yeah, and I think about our tagline, amplify their voice. It's it's not that people in the margins don't have a voice. It's just we're not listening. And so I do agree with you that it's part of our our job is to, to help other people listen <laughs> to what people are saying um, that aren't being heard. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it's different to say... I'm not racist or I don't feel any differently about any member of the population versus every member of the population deserves to have the same opportunities. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that everybody mm -hmm. else has the same opportunities that I have. Yeah. Yeah. That I think is the difference. And so I think, I think what you're doing is phenomenal. Thank you. You're standing up for people who need their voices to be amplified. You are that amplification. And I take my hat off to you for Thank that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, now let's talk about some success stories. Yeah, you know, yeah, tell us about, about some that. some things that have gone well throughout yeah. the last three years that uh, that you've been doing this. Yeah, so um, we had two girls that were in a group home 
in Phoenix and were adopted by this amazing family in rural, very rural part of Arizona. And they reached out to us. School had no idea how to help these kids because they're like, we don't. We don't know. They were both uh, trafficking victims. So part of why they were moved into such a rural placement was so that they would be safe. And so we were able to connect the school district with one of the a top trauma re, um, specialists that was able to connect them to a therapist up there and uh, really get them the support they need. And they're both thriving at school. I just talked to the foster mom and, and they're both doing really, really well. So that's been really fun. And, and honestly, COVID allowed us to serve have a broader reach through Zoom because normally we'd not travel that far, but everything was on Zoom. So it didn't matter where they were in the state. So we were able to really um, help students that maybe normally we wouldn't have been able to to impact them. Um, Another student was um, one that I talked about earlier, but he was in five group homes, I believe. And then he was in the juvenile justice system for a while. And he was adopted by... um, a wonderful man who, when this boy was 17, so that's really rare to be adopted at 17, but he was adopted. Um, we were able to get the school to provide the supporting needs. He, We found out he had dyslexia, so he got some tutoring to catch up in reading, and he was dropping, he, he was failing all of his classes and about to drop out prior to being adopted. And then kind of through the support of the school and the foster parent, he is now planning on going to college. So we're super excited for him. And just to see that transformation in a really short amount of time um, and to see what happens when, you know, his voice is advocated for and the school is all on the same page working to support him, what a transformation can happen. Another story um, that comes to mind is this little boy who um, is named James and he he would collect things on the school um, playground and he kept getting in trouble for this. And so we figured out why is he getting in trouble or why is he doing this? And we found out, you know, he was at a group home before and he, everything was stolen from him. And so he had nothing to his name. So he just collect anything. And so once the, we were able to meet with the team and, and explain to the school team and explain to his teacher, this is his story. You know, this is why he's doing that. Instead of getting in trouble, now he has his job is to be the the treasure collector on the recess. And he feels really good about that. And, you know, all the kids are like, oh, find me a treasure on, on the playground. And so small things like that are huge wins for him because instead of getting in trouble for something that's just a survival skill for him, now he's being rewarded. And, you know, the kids are like, oh, you're so cool because you found whatever on the playground. So stories like that are just really cool to see. A lot of it is just um, a mindset mindset shift for teachers or for school teams, once they understand the story of a child and what they've experienced, they start to think about the behavior differently. And then they start to think creatively, like, what can we do to help this student instead of just have them go to detention or something like that? So those are fun stories to just see how I could go on and on of stories like that, but where when people really gain empathy and um, hear the stories of kids that have gone through a lot how much their life can change dramatically. Yeah, I think that's the key, right? The last thing that you said about empathy. If you show empathy to everybody in this world Mm -hmm. and you don't assume that you know what they're going through and treat them as though it's their worst worst day, right? 
then everybody's going to be treated the way that they want to be treated or should be treated. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's, you know, all three of those stories were impactful stories, Yeah. right? And so as somebody who has training in sales, uh-huh. <laughs> that's the opportunity to then go in for the sale, right? Yeah. So talk to us about, you know, obviously that that changes the trajectory of those of those kids' lives. Absolutely. We've talked about how what you guys do and advocating and helping them to get the proper education, the help that they need mm-hmm. while they're in the school system right. is going to change their trajectory of their life. It's going to keep them out of prison. It's going to do all these wonderful things mm-hmm. for them. So how do we get involved? How does yeah. the listenership of our show get involved with your organization, what can we do to help? Thank you for asking that question. We, uh, because we're a nonprofit, we don't take any government funding very intentionally because we don't want the strings attached with that. And so all of our funding comes either through um, foundation grants, through businesses that have you know grant funding or through the foster care tax credit. In Arizona, we're really blessed to have this tax credit. So um, we're a qualifying organization, so individuals can give up to a thousand, or individuals can give up to five hundred, married couples up to a thousand, and that is fully refundable when you file your taxes. So that's a great way that people can support the work that we're doing without it really costing them a lot. And then if you own a business and your business has some sort of foundation, or if you give out grants to community organizations, we'd love to hear about that and and see if our organization would be um, could be a, a recipient of that and continue the work that we're doing in the community um, with the backing of small businesses. We love partnering with businesses in that way and really feel like that's a way for them to have a tangible in, um, impact in the local community. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, so I've only lived in Arizona for about seven years now. And when I moved here and learned how the state of Arizona does that with the tax credits, yeah. with these different organizations... I thought it was a phenomenal way to to look at it. Yeah. Right? And so if you're a listener to this to this show and you don't understand how that works, you should look up how that works on yeah. the Arizona State uh, Department of Revenue, I think mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. That talks about that because it, literally you're allowed you're it they're giving you the opportunity to direct your state income tax mm-hmm. the way that you want it to. Right. And so everybody who's listening has at least a five hundred or a thousand dollar tax liability to the state of Arizona, right? you have the ability to say, I want this to go to Advocacy 319. Yeah. And they apply it as though you paid your taxes directly to the state of Arizona. Right. It's amazing. It's huge for nonprofits in Arizona. And I really think it's allowed nonprofits to flourish in Arizona um, because we're able to be funded in this way. So if you want to learn more about that on our website, uh, I don't know if we can link to it, but www.advocacy319.org. Um, we have a whole frequently asked questions about the tax credit because we get a lot of questions about it. So you can donate on that website and lots of information about it. Absolutely. So obviously you just gave the the website. We will link to the website and anything Perfect. that we post on on social media uh, after the show as well. But how how do people get in touch with you besides the website? If, do you, are you active on LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, on Facebook. On Facebook, we have a Advocacy 319 Facebook group. We post a lot on that. And then I'm also personally on there. If people want to find me there or on LinkedIn, that'd be great. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've really appreciated the conversation. I've learned some things. I've been reminded of some things that are really important for me to be reminded of. Yeah. And, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. So great. We appreciate you being in the studio today and being willing yeah. to have this conversation with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. You bet. Thank you for all you do. Thanks. Thanks. 
You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.